I'd like to look with you at a couple passages from the three forms of unity. First from the Heidelberg Catechism, from question answer 19. Speaking of how the gospel was revealed in the Old Testament, the gospel of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Question and answer 19. The question is asked, from where do you know this? That is the message of our Savior. From the Holy Gospel, which God himself first revealed in paradise. Later, he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Then we turn also to the canons of Dort to chapter 3, 4. Page 554. In my edition of the Book of Praise, chapter 3, 4, looking at articles 6 and 7. Now we find there the confession of the church. What therefore neither the light of nature nor the law can do, God performs by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word or ministry of reconciliation, which is the gospel of the Messiah, by which it has pleased God to save men who believe, both under the old and under the new dispensation. And Article 7, under the old dispensation, God revealed this mystery of his will to few. Under the new dispensation, however, he took the distinction between the peoples away and revealed it to a larger number. The cause of this very distribution of the gospel is not to be ascribed to the worthiness of one people above another, nor to the better use of the light of nature, but to the sovereign good pleasure and undeserved love of God. Therefore, we to whom so great a grace is granted beyond and contrary to all we deserve ought to acknowledge it with a humble and grateful heart. But as regards to others whom this grace is not given, we ought with the apostle to adore the severity and righteousness of the judgments of God, but by no means inquisitively to pry into them. So far, our reading. We will sing after the preaching of God's word from Psalm 67, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved in Christ, did you know that more than two-thirds of our Bible is Old Testament? If you took your Bible and did a quick comparison of the number of pages, Old versus New Testament you'd see that there's far more content that's old. That's not an earth-shattering insight. Yet it is something to pay attention to. We need to remember the front two-thirds of our Bibles. 
For many of us, we'll sooner turn to that last third section. Generally, it just seems easier to read, easier to understand. After all, the New Testament introduces us to the person and works of our Savior, gives clear guidance for our lives as Christians. But we need to ask, where has the message of Christ come from? What's the background behind all those instructions of the apostles? For this, we need to look to the Old Testament. The apostles themselves insisted on this point. Paul emphasized that his preaching always dealt with the whole counsel of God, that is, the complete range of God's revelation. Sure, Paul would preach Christ and him crucified, but never forgetting all the preparations that had been made before the Savior's coming. And constantly the New Testament does this. It builds upon the foundations that are laid in the old. We must understand that for God, nothing comes out of nowhere. Nothing comes out of nowhere. That is, there's always a backdrop behind the main action. There's always a time of getting ready. Why the teachings of the New Testament are almost always anticipated in the old. And so also with mission and evangelism. With mission and evangelism, we should not assume that it's only a New Testament concern. Sometimes that's what we think, that mission and evangelism doesn't start until that well-known passage in Matthew 28 when Jesus orders his apostles Go and make disciples of all nations. Was that suddenly a new concern that God had for the nations? Was this going out a surprising new activity for God's people? In some ways, it was. Yet there was also a long leading up to it. God had prepared his church for this important task already long centuries before. In the Old Testament, God had built the background for this main event. And so we look at mission and evangelism this afternoon under this theme, God entrusted the gospel to his Old Testament people. We'll consider a unique possession, a distinct calling, and a certain fulfillment. The Old Testament has a sharp focus on the nation of Israel and on her relationship with God. There's no getting around that. Those first two-thirds of our Bibles give a careful account of God's dealings with just one particular ethnic group. If any historical events are recorded, it's because Israel was involved. If any prophet is sent, he's sent to the Israelites. If any laws are given, they're laws meant for Israel's life with God. Very little of the Old Testament concerns what we might call world history. Only the first 11 chapters of Genesis provide us with a glimpse into that wider world. For there we read how God created the universe, Genesis 1 and 2. Then mankind fell, was punished, and salvation for the woman's seed was promised, Genesis 3. Yet the spread of world wickedness continued, Genesis 4 and 5, until God had enough. And he sent the flood to destroy mankind except one family, Genesis 6 to 9. 
You all know that after the the cleansing flood, men's hearts were still wicked. For the nations needed to disperse from needed to be dispersed from Babel, Genesis eleven. The nations scattered to fill the earth, as they had been told. And out of those multitudes of the world, just one nation, one people, was chosen as God's possession. That's the story of Genesis twelve. When God first appeared to Abraham and he said, Leave your country your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. With Abraham, God would make a covenant. To Abraham, God would give his promise. Beloved, see what has happened. Suddenly there is a narrowing in the Bible's history, a dramatic focusing. It's no longer about mankind in general. It's not about the nations It's about one people. And that's how it stays. Right from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi 4 and the end of the Old Testament. Throughout, God speaks his word to them alone. God gives his forgiving grace to them alone. God enters a relationship with Israel alone. The psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 147. He writes there, God has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He's done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. No, Israel enjoyed a very unique position. They had a privileged place in the eyes of the Lord. Not that God forgot the rest of mankind. Not that he didn't guide the circumstances of the wider world. But God was pleased to set his special affection upon Israel alone. As God said to them in Exodus 19, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What a blessing this was. The covenant that they had was not a stifling relationship Keeping the law wasn't meant to be a heavy burden. Making all those animal sacrifices wasn't supposed to be a tiresome chore. This was the way to eternal life. Opened up for Israel to pass through safely. Why, even before Christ came to the earth, the Israelites knew the good news. The good news that God is willing to have. Fellowship with his sinful creatures. Once again, this was the Holy Gospel spoken of in Lord's Day 6. As question answer 19 describes, God himself first revealed it in paradise. Later he had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Bit by bit, line by line, promise by promise, God revealed his saving plan. He gave Israel careful instruction in that redemption that was about to unfold. And think of how many did not know what the Israelites did. Just think of all those nations over the years who were in the dark. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans... 
Or think of the rest of the world. Those barbarians over in Europe, the tribes of Africa, the populations of Asia, the natives there in South America and North America and the Pacific, peoples of every tongue and nationality. Not one of them ever heard, ever heard how the true God was making possible salvation from sin. All of these were born, they lived, they died in ignorance without learning the truth. Maybe another time we can ponder that sticky question of fairness. Whether it's fair that so many never had the same opportunities as Israel. For now we say this, in his sovereign good pleasure and his unsearchable wisdom, God decided to entrust the gospel to his chosen nation alone. As the canon state under the old dispensation, God revealed this mystery of his will to few. On a world scale, that's all it was, relatively speaking, a few. Just a few would know the mystery of God's will concerning deliverance from eternal death. Just a few would know it, and these few would safeguard the gospel for all those centuries. These would carry the promise of redemption and they would keep on carrying it right toward the horizon of the fullness of time. Long ago, God said that the seed of the woman would triumph over the devil, would usher in the day of salvation. And the seed with all that potential, with all that promise, was preserved in little old Abraham's line. That's why Satan always devoted such energy to wiping Israel out. He tried to wipe Israel out through the attacks of hostile nations, through slavery to temptation and sin, through famine or disease or disaster. For within Israel's borders lay the very future of salvation. Through Israel ran that holy line of promise. For all those centuries, the gospel was their special possession. And with it came their distinct calling. In God's view, it's always been true that great privilege brings great responsibility. If God has given much, he also expects much. And when we look at the Old Testament history of Israel, we see that principle in action. On the one hand, the pagans were left to do their own thing. They hadn't received the full revelation of God and the word, so they could hardly be expected to worship him rightly. Idolatry, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 4, was something apportioned to the nations. Paul preached the same thing to the Athenians, that God even overlooked the ignorance of the Gentiles when they made their idols of wood and stone. But Israel, on the other hand, had a weighty responsibility. If they were going to be God's treasured possession, as the Lord declared, then they would also have to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, they would have to stand out in this world. 
They were a people belonging to the Lord, so they'd have to act like it too. The Old Testament law shows how God called them to a far-reaching holiness. The Israelites had to be set apart unto God in every way, in what they said, in what they thought, in what they undertook with their hands. They had to be holy in the food they ate, in the clothes they wore, in the homes they built. They had to be holy, set apart, even in how they conducted war and business and agriculture, and of course, in how they worshiped God. Be holy, God said, as I am holy. For it was the same for Israel back then as it is for us today. Holiness gets noticed. When people look at the people of God, they ought to see that there's something different. Different about our marriages and our friendships and our family life. That there's something different about how we treat each other as members of the church. That there's something different about how we do our daily work. As Peter wrote in his first letter, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That's the striking thing about Israel's calling. They were to be seen as a holy people even while their contact with unbelievers was quite limited. For remember what the promised land was supposed to be. A secure land, a territory free of pagans and idolaters. That's why their big task in those first few years was chasing out and even destroying the nations of Canaan. The Israelites didn't want any neighbors. It seems they didn't have much of a desire to evangelize the Middle East. We can't imagine the Israelites organizing a home mission committee like we do today. And they were a distinct people, dwelling in a separate land. But beloved, we need to have a full picture of that Old Testament situation. We have to see that God never entirely abandoned the other nations. And he didn't want his people to either. For example, even in the law given at Sinai, the door was opened ever so slightly. For the law actually allowed for aliens and sojourners, people of other nations, to dwell among the Israelites. If there were some from other countries who wanted to live in Israel's midst, they could do so. They wouldn't have the full rights of citizens and no inheritance in the land. But if they were dedicated to the Lord, they could stay. They'd even be protected and cared for. There are well-known examples of this already in those violent days of the Canaan conquest. Rahab, the woman from Jericho, was permitted a place in Israel where she was faithful in God's service. Or think of Ruth, the Moabite woman, given legal standing among God's people and a place in the Messiah's line. Even as the newly constructed Jerusalem temple is being dedicated in 1 Kings 8, King Solomon mentions the non-Israelites dwelling among them. Solomon prays on that occasion, 
As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for men will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward the temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you. The Gentiles would not be forgotten, not by God and not by his church. As we advance through the Old Testament, we see that theme more often. Holy they were and set apart, but the Israelites were never a nation completely unto themselves. What did God say through Isaiah? God says that he would make Israel a light for the Gentiles. That they might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Among all those nations dwelling in the dark, Israel was a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. So how exactly, we wonder, did the Israelites shine their light? Well, sometimes God's prophets were sent to foreign nations. Think of Elijah going to the widow of Zarephath and Sidon. Think of Jonah going to the city of Nineveh. These were ambassadors of God, bringing revelation from the living God himself to people who had never heard it. Now, some will point out that such prophets hardly brought the good news to the pagans. Jonah, after all, brought a message of God's coming wrath. Yet all the same, see how the people of Nineveh responded. God was showing his concern for them, the city of unbelievers, and they repented and were saved from destruction. Certainly a much larger part of Israel's task was in what we mentioned before, their holiness as God's people. The other nations could see in Israel, they should have seen in Israel, that there was something different. There was something praiseworthy. There was something, as Solomon said, that testified to God's great name and his mighty hand. And the Israelites were well positioned to give such a testimony. If you look at a map sometime, you see that the land of Israel has a very strategic location. In ancient times, it lay at the crossroads of the known world. It was between the great nation Egypt and the nations of Mesopotamia. It was found on major trade routes and had large seaports on the Mediterranean. It was no coincidence that God gave his nation such a prominent position. God would not hide the Israelites in a corner, kept from watching eyes. No, God would proudly display his loved ones so that everyone could see this was the work of his hands. This people, the result of his love. Let all the nations know the wondrous things that the living God can do. Especially in the glory days of David and Solomon, think of how the witness of Israel went out far and wide. This was a time of much trade and travel, diplomacy and commerce. Even the Queen of Sheba 
came all the way to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of the Lord. And what did this Gentile say to Solomon at the end of her visit? She said, Praise be to the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. By the time we reach the end of the Old Testament, Israel's calling to be a witness in the world has become quite pronounced. For example, in chapter 8, Zechariah has this vision which we read. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Even among the nations, there's a hunger for salvation, a desire for a right relationship with God. Through Zechariah, God was preparing his people for that broad new calling, the calling that they received from Jesus Christ, indeed, to make disciples of all nations. Ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew and say, let us go with you. Well, if that was said for God's Old Testament people, it should be even more true today. Those outside of the church need to see it in our lives, that God is with us. They need to hear it from our mouths. God has done wondrous things for us. From us, they need to know that holy gospel. God has brought sinners back to himself through Jesus Christ. May many take hold of us, saying, we have heard that God is with you. And may we gladly show them the way. Finally, we'll consider a certain fulfillment. Early on in world history, God had narrowed his focus. He would deal with one man, with one nation. But you always knew there was going to be more. Slowly but surely, God was moving things in a certain direction toward a certain goal. The Catechism speaks of this gradual revelation of the gospel. First announced in paradise, proclaimed by patriarchs and prophets, foreshadowed by the law until, finally, he had it fulfilled through his only son. Finally, Jesus Christ came to this earth. No, let it not be forgotten, he was a Jew. He was born in David's line. His birthplace was Bethlehem. His hometown was Nazareth. His native tongue was Aramaic. He was a true Hebrew, even crucified as the king of the Jews. But he was also much more. In his own words, this Israelite was the light of the world. The salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross wasn't some minor blip in world history. No, this was a moment that changed everything and everywhere. It was far too dramatic, far too rich, far too glorious. 
to be known by one people alone. By his death, Christ ushered in a universal gospel for all sinners who put their trust in him. None need be excluded. None need walk away empty-handed. For whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. If the Israelites had been paying attention, they would have seen this. For what did God say even at the beginning? The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. That wasn't some schoolyard fight, some backroom brawl. That was a grand struggle, a clash on a cosmic scale. Through Christ, the whole world could be delivered from Satan's power. Even when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, that truth was put up front. For while the Lord said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you, in the same breath, he also declared, all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Already at this dramatic narrowing of God's focus, the Lord hints at what is yet to come. His plans include much more than one man and his physical descendants. Through Abraham's line would come blessing for all peoples. Just as the canons of Dort state, under the old dispensation, God took the distinction between peoples away and revealed the gospel to a larger number. It does make you wonder, though, what Israel did with Psalm 87. That psalm speaks very explicitly of the ingathering of the nations into Zion, the city of God. In the end times, Jerusalem would not be the domain of the Israelites alone, but a place where all peoples could go up to worship the Lord. We read there, Glorious things are said of you, O city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me, Philistia and Tyre, along with Cush. In short, God's people would one day be Catholic. She would be a church gathered out of the whole human race. Guess what a shocking message for the Israelites in Psalm 87. Rahab was another name for Egypt. Babylon was a superpower who would enslave Israel in coming years. Philistia, the arch enemy of Israel. Tyre and Cush, yet more pagan nations, lost in the darkness. Yet what does God say for each of them? This one was born in Zion. Born in Zion. A full citizen of God's nation written in the register of his people. And Zechariah prophesied the same thing. We read there, many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come and will say, let us go at once and entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. We know this was a hard teaching for the Israelites. Even after Jesus told the apostles to go make disciples of all nations, there were long and heated debates about the place of the Gentiles among God's people. Were they in or were they out? 
Yet ultimately that uncertainty was overcome. Overcome by the sheer wonder of the cross and the empty tomb. The message of Christ could not be hidden in a corner. It cannot be restrained by the borders of nations or concealed behind the walls of the church. It's a gospel for all nations. Already at Pentecost, those peoples, once scattered at Babel, heard the gospel in their own language for the very first time. Yes, for God's grace in Christ is wide enough, beloved, wide enough to embrace people of all nations, of all colors, of all times and places, all who believe. Why, his grace is wide enough to embrace even us. Descendants of those barbarians from Europe, descendants of a long line of pagans, Gentiles by birth, we've been grafted into the people of God. What then can our response be? Well, the canons put it so well. We to whom so great a grace is granted beyond and contrary to all we deserve ought to acknowledge it with a humble and grateful heart. Yes, for beloved, now we too are God's unique possession. His possession given that same distinct calling to shine the light of God's glory in Christ to all peoples and to every nation. Amen.